Welcome to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons, and we are hosts on The People. The People features the voices and ideas of the people that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on Kei Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Like a broken record, magically repaired. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at keichungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about our guests as you're listening to the show. And our guests today on The People are Christina Andres and John Hogan. Christina Andres is a Los Angeles artist. In 2010, she was an artist fellow with the Terra Foundation for American Art in Giverny, France. A forthcoming publication entitled An Invisible Way will present a documentation of her experiences at that residency. She's had work at artists curated projects, public fiction, and Los Angeles contemporary exhibitions. Christina is also the founding director of the artist-run initiative, Knowledges. John P. Hogan is also a Los Angeles artist. Most recently, his performance, Song of Yourselves, premiered at Automata, Los Angeles. A publication in association with Song of Yourselves is forthcoming from Golden Spike Press this fall. A related written work and series of drawings are available for purchase through Material Press as part of their limited edition series. Hogan is exhibited and performed at venues including MCASD, Yerba Buena Center, Fritz Haig Sundown Salon, Max Center, and Machine Project. He has written for Art 21, and his essay on the work of painter Ben White Thank you. is included in the forthcoming book, Ruin Upon Ruin, from Insert Blanc Press. John Hogan and Christine Andres, welcome to the people. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, guys. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How's it going? Um, good. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's nice to be here on the people. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we have to think of things to say. Well, that was Moondog. We, we picked that song to listen to. <laughs> Sorry, I'm acting a little strange. It's okay. Tell us about Moondog. Uh, that is a uh, blind man dressed up like a Viking in the 50s. Is that correct, Christina? Uh, 1950s? Yeah, I'd say 50s or 60s. 40s. He's an and experimental musician. He, New York City. Uh, I think he lit, he was roommates with like uh, Steve Reich or something mm-hmm. at some point. He worked with Philip Glass too. And he, uh, yeah, and he owned land in uh, upstate New York as well, <laughs> which I think is incredible. But I guess he like uh, he was like a, a, a busker, avant-garde busker. Yeah. So we both like Moondog. He really loved Germany too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a, yeah. I think he had a really. He uh, had a great time in Germany, right? Like, that's where he came into his own or something? And that's where he lived, right? He lived... For part of his life. Yeah, at like, the at the end. The, the success, right? The victory lap was in Germany. Right. Mm. As, as is for many American artists, as far as I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and he created some of his own musical instruments. The, like? The timbre? I don't know. I'm not a... Sort of a percussive instrument. Yeah, and he was, yeah. So uh, we like Moondog. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so. Do you want to play at, something? Or you want to yeah. talk? Or what do you want to do? I, yeah, sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. We both picked a bunch of stuff because we're, Christina and I are uh, married. 
and uh, we've been together a long time. And we're we two, weren't going to mention it. We're two autonomous artists. Did I uh, did I blow it? Really? <laughs> no. Yeah. <Man>. We could have <laughs> gone through that whole it's, thing. It's true that you're actually two autonomous artists. We're that's, two autonomous artists and humans with our own. But we have certain things that we uh, link up on. But I, we figured also we would share some stuff that individually was uh, inspiring to us and um, kind of talk about the points where we converge. Um, so uh, anyway, um, so the first thing I picked was um, something that's uh, by the Nation of Ulysses, which is this band out of DC <laughs> and then was 1991 or something, um, which I never saw them live, but Christine and I, uh, we uh, used to live in Baltimore. We went to college in Baltimore uh, in the late 90s. We would see uh, The Makeup and all these other DC bands. Um, and The Makeup, uh, which is Ian Sfinonius and uh, Michelle May and all these guys, which is like a gospel, it's like a gospel funk. Gospel funk. yeah, yeah. Gospel yeah, yeah. That's a term which, you're searching for. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> is which that, is, wait, is that really like a musical term? Gospel well, yeah, yeah? For yeah. them, yeah. Invented I by yeah. Yeah, Ian Sfinonius <laughs> or whatever, which is like. Because it's like this sort of revivalist idea, you know, like of uh, the, the spiritual healing quality of rock and roll, you know? And uh, I think that's an, oh, sorry. I think that's a, that's a point that we sort of are unified over, you know, sort of like Dan Graham, Rock, rock My Religion. Uh. Yeah, the, well, yeah, so, so the makeup was like, a, like kind of trying to evoke um, like Baptist gospel music, but also uh, French, yay, yay, like French pop. Um, <laughs> Sort of, but that, that kind of fell by the wayside. And it was a super charismatic live show. The Nation of Ulysses was the precursor to that band, which was uh. super, like, it was like radical politics-driven hardcore music. But whereas regular hardcore music is like, um, I guess, like your suburban pretty straightforward, like I'm angry at the establishment of regular style capitalism and as as Suburban as practiced by my parents yeah right. um this is more like a radical like critical theory mixed with uh, hardcore music so what's the name of this song we're gonna play uh what i think it's called end sub ulysses it's like the yeah. first track off of plays pretty for baby and what i like about it is that it's a maybe not entirely sincere manifesto read to a live club and then on this track you and then um and then uh, followed by an actual, like, you know, song. song. But what was cool about uh, Ian Sfinonius, who fronted both of those bands, uh, and the, I always thought was kind of a brave thing about it, uh, was uh, his willingness and his, uh, to integrate, like, spoken word elements into a rock venue or, you know, these places mm -hmm. that are, like, pretty, like, not, not very uh, friendly to, like, that sort of thing. Um, almost like borderline poetry at certain points mm. or like manifestos and just reading a track mm. can be, you can meet with hostility and they kind of use that hostility in their, in their performances. Kinda All right, let's check it out, yeah. To you, the bold and foolish lambs, to you who are To you who are intoxicated, 
with riddles. Let's go. Who take pleasure in twilight? Whose souls are lured by noise to every treacherous abyss? For you do not feel for a rope like cowards, and where you can guess you hate to calculate. And where others would poison, you dismember. So that was Nation of Ulysses, yeah? Yeah, that was, uh, that was Nation of Ulysses. Um, also, uh, um, uh, untrained tr uh, trombone playing, <laughs> as far as I understand. <laughs> anyway, that was a big, that band was a big deal to me as a youngster. And um, I, they, they had like certain elements that are about like, uh, kind of like sending up beatniks and stuff. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like um, he's been a big influence on your practice, it seems. I, I think that idea of like inventing a personality that then you enact before an audience has been something you've explored in your own work. Um, and I think in, in your most recent piece at Automata, the, um, the Song of Yourselves, you invoked similarly some iconic 
some iconic white males, <laughs> including Walt Whitman and... Um, yeah, beat the the legacy of beat poetry, and also just the I guess if I'd say the the contemporary cons- American consumerist experience, huh. um, and um, and the sort of ensuing frustration of that, and sort of wove it into um, sort of your own fury-driven manifesto of sorts, um, articulating your experience. If that's an accurate description, that's, that's, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I, I know we wanted to play a little clip of that, um, and yeah. I think that um, in a, in a way it's kind of your own manifesto, um, and it, what, it's called uh, "Blow Bugles Blow." <laughs> yeah, it, well, that's from. Um, well, yeah, thanks. That's from um, "Song of Yourselves." Uh, yeah, uh, from Automata, and uh, I have a clip of it for, for performing it live, which will uh, be on the People's Blog. Right yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We'll hook we'll that put up. It up there. And yeah. where did you get the the title for that? Was that just like a, a rallying cry? Blow bugles. bugles. Oh, th- yeah. This section is called blow bugles blow. Well, the entire thing is called song yourselves, which is just a play on song of uh, myself by Walt Whitman. So blow bugles blow is a, a Walt Whitman reference um, yeah. for his uh, was it war taps or the the stuff mm. he did about the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's one where he's. Uh, saying beat drums beat blow bugles blow it's about uh you know the civil war but in, in my case it's about just consumerist the civil war inside you, us all yeah or also <laughs> the the red state blue state war that we find ourselves Whoa. enmeshed in in contemporary a way America. to bring it to huh. serious yeah. topical. totally like, can, yeah. you, can you That's correct great. me if i'm wrong I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up it's an irish wake for the dominance of the white man? Uh, yeah, Song of Yourselves was conceived as an Irish wake for the supremacy of the American white male. That's what I wanted. That's what the ding, ding, ding. performance was. It was uh, poetry, uh, original poetry by myself, uh, but evoking the spirit or voice of Walt Whitman, also re-performances of speeches from the Republican National Convention of 2012, right. mm-hmm. and karaoke uh, as sung by audience members at appropriate intervals throughout. All right, well, Leslie let's... Dick doing an excellent rendition of, what uh, was it? What is that, Positively 4th uh, Street? Street? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. right. Yes, yeah. it was. Wow. Yeah, it was, unbeatable. It was awesome. She said she's only sung karaoke <laughs> twice, and both times was that song. <laughs> Which Those moments were really, really great, too. And also to see, like, during the, you know, there were sort of pre-selected pools of songs that the audience could choose. But both nights of the performance, both audiences independently chose Everybody Wants to Rule the World as the closing yes. track. Really? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of... Why? That's uh, revealing. Just politics. <laughs> Got it. Because yeah. the sentiment is true. Oh, let's right. listen to the live version of Blow, Bugles, Blow. Oh, yeah. Imagine this as your seafaring adventure, an overstaffed ship on an endless voyage. No mutiny, always food, crackers and gruel. In sympathy with deck rats, the man playing the fife works for free, duetting with seagulls. The ocean is bottomless. You keep the lamps in oil. The boat reaches land. You need to visit Target anyway. You have a prescription. They have the right kind of unscented detergent here. 
the right kind of lavender-scented dish soap. Now you remember you need canking, because these canker sores hurt like hell. Isn't there a little grocery store here? You wonder if they sell lemons. They'll need lemons on the ship. Lemons and oranges to protect against scurvy. You should ask for a reimbursement for that if you're just going to give them away. I'm mean, sure they get the crew. That should be in the ship's budget after all. But you know it isn't. They're not going to remember to buy lemons. And you know you'll share them. You're not a monster. Can't believe they don't have your prescription. particularly demoralizing uh, trip to Target where uh, my prescription that I was waiting for was not available and I had to spend uh, an extra half hour there and uh, uh, my life was in crisis. <laughs> I do think it's funny, I mean, as we've, we've talked to, to friends who, who attended the show, like how that that scene really resonated with everyone and I mean in some ways it's like it's awesome but in another way it's also like this weird common denominator among us is like shopping at Target <laughs> you know what I mean it's not like the Civil War 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the location of our collective experience. And that yeah. specific target too. Sorry, non LA <laughs> listeners. The Eagle Rock target. The Eagle Rock Eagle target. Rock. Right. Yeah. It's a little. Can you can you do a couple quotes from that? Like I was going to describe it, but it's all in there. Like it's just it's a little too far. It's well, I guess it's something like a little too far. It's about ten or fifteen miles from our apartment, but. Uh, they have the right cat litter. Yeah, they have the right kind of um, uh, scentless, uh, uh, yeah, liquid dishwashing liquid or whatever. And, uh, yeah, the right kind of detergent. And uh, it's Eagle Rock is pleasant. I'd like to live there someday if I can ever afford it. That kind of sentiment. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll close that up with, uh, the, with white males, with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Uh, so, oh, well, in, in the performance, there is also, uh, yeah, like I do a reperformance of Clint Eastwood's thing. I guess the idea is that... Um, Clint Eastwood's thing at the Republican National Sorry, Election, excuse right? me. Yes, yeah. his the kind of rambling, uh, improv, uh, yeah, empty chair monologue. And I guess the idea is, well, the way I wrote this w- was actually very, like, kind of emo, which was that I would kind of just write in my journal like freeform poetry like I did in high school, you know? And it was sort of like a return to that kind of, and I almost almost even associate that way of expressing myself with like the suburbs because that was my like childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so this, this, so it's this kind of return to this idea of like comfort and that it's okay to express yourself uh, with poetry and stuff, which for some reason uh, in my post-grad school mind is associated with a bygone era of um, like white male supremacy that I'm indulging in, even though like as time goes on, uh, it's inevitable that it's going to slip away. And so my interest in in some sense was to explore this idea that... uh, that like box stores and whatever are are kind of part of this this culture that um, people will be nostalgic about uh, that white men will be nostalgic about in the way that somebody from another country who immigrates to America is nostalgic mm-hmm. about you know Hong Kong or something they're going to be nostalgic about you know the targets of their youth or or they're going to have weird associations with it that make them upset. But there is nostalgia about Borders, books, and music in Songs of Yourself. <laughs> because Borders, books, and music, it's a corporate chain, but it already went out of business and is gone. And I have a weird attachment, emotional attachment. Well, it's also this weird, like, field of projection, you know? And it's kind of, like, unexpected in a way. I mean, because... It- like when we when you read about things historically, I guess it always seems like oh, like someone like Walt Whitman is like reflecting on like the Civil War as his like backdrop, you know. And then it's like we find ourselves in contemporary America, and we're like reflecting on like our experience at Target. And, and yes. relatively, it seems so insignificant, but at the same time, it still has to it still has to like do with this reflection of like desire and like the um, this idea of an American dream of like living the life of pro- like, of promise and happiness you know and I think like I think that's why it like surprisingly has resonated with like so many people that have seen the piece you know because they've they've had that experience and it's sort of simultaneously like this realization of a dream but it's also like the I don't know like the the emptiness of desire, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which yeah. sounds really inflated for an experience of shopping at Target, but it's sort of like a reality check of where we are, you know, as a um, culture, nothing, nothing you know, yet. that we're, like, so looking for, like, consumer satisfaction as part of our, like, identity. Yeah, you become... There's a physical 
place in the universe where the emptiness of desire is embodied. <laughs> it is that target. <laughs> it's that spot. In the but I guess I was thinking like, about other places. Like, I was thinking when we lived in New York, right? Like how, oh, sorry. Like how, like, um, there was this post office in Greenpoint that always felt like a highly loaded ground for me. And there was something, and to me, I always felt like it was something about being an American post office, you know? And that it was literally like there were people from all walks of life that would patronize it, but it seemed to be a mass ground of confusion. And it also kind of looked like some sort of like refugee camp. Like there were just things like, I, oh, I probably shouldn't say that. I don't, like, like that there were just like, it was very ramshackle, let's say. And it felt very desperate. A bunch of unmoored people. But, but like everyone people. was sort of coming together, trying to get together to this common purpose of mailing things. Right. And I think, yeah. We should cut this whole part out. No, I, I think it's like, the I, my well, only point is like that there are certain, like, I, re I remember certain places like that because they sort of somehow tapped into something that seemed like resonant with this idea of America. Like and, representative and, of a broken system and in collectivity some way. And just yeah, the, the, collectivity. The, the very simple, I mean, and, and Whitman, like all, a lot of his invocations are always trying to, I mean, He'll say one thing and then he'll go on for three more pages in a list and mm. hope that at some point in that list you're like, yeah, that thing. Right. Exactly. You know? uh -huh. Yes. And, there's and, these, yeah. And so target for better or worse is something that we all identify with when you're, you know, you're doing that piece. Yeah. And it is, it is kind of weirdly like your dear reader moment, you know, mm. your Whitman-esque like, you know, this is really, a, it's, it's, this is about, it's like you're saying something that's about like an experience of yours at Target, but it's like. But isn't this the same experience you had as well, like mm. at Target, you know? And so it feels very personal as well somehow. It's an it's an interesting moment. But Yeah. So tell us about Moondog, because we're gonna listen to a monologue. So tell us more again about Moondog, how it relates to, you know, your guys' work and especially maybe this Song of Yourselves piece. Um, okay, well uh, well I guess yeah, I was a little bit uh, stiff on the Moondog earlier, but I guess what's kind of interesting to me is um, that he's a, you know, he's a visionary, he's basically what you could call a visionary artist, except he's not because he's actually like integrated into the <laughs> avant-garde of the 20th century, you know, composition. Um, but anyway, uh, that he has these kind of idiosyncratic observations and notions and um, just because of the sheer, at least to me, the sheer sort of integrity of how he, he this is a guy who was on the verge of being homeless for years and didn't care about anything except um, his music, as far as I could understand. You know, he was a serious composer, um, but he was also practically living on the streets, spending all his time on the streets, but like essentially busking, but busking with like, kind of like, I mean, I'm not a musician really, but a sort of like micro, you know, not a avant-garde. I don't know what I'm talking about, but quasi microtonal, like, you know, or whatever, like uh, um, composition. He, he wasn't playing he, like happy poppy songs right. for people. He was like doing, yeah. He, he wasn't even doing like um, this land is your land. Right? Life on his own terms. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's something that we both identify with. Like in some ways, like as artists, like I think we've you know, technically been through this quote-unquote classical training as artists, but I think, like, in a way, we both identify more with, like, fringe culture, you know, and and how, um, 
eyes bow down. You know, I think that's why you mentioned Harry Parch like in earlier conversations because he's. Since what what is that story that you had about him, Alan Lomax approaching Harry Parch? Oh, well, Harry Parch approaching Alan Lomax. Oh, okay. I was reading this book about Alan Lomax last year, and uh, Harry Parch had approached him to record his music, like as if it was uh, folk music. But I, I guess it's like Alan Lomax usually does the approaching to people, you know, and um, he kind of Harry Parch, I guess, explained his whole deal to Alan Lomax, and Alan Lomax was basically like, that sounds amazing. It's also not what I do. You know, you're kind of like doing an expansive um, thing where you're pushing boundaries, and I'm kind of just looking for people who make, you know, folk music that their grandma taught them. That's not a quote. Well, like, he, quite, he qualified Harry Parch more as an experimental, like an avant-garde artist because of his training background, although Harry Parch saw himself more as a visionary artist. Each today Correct. is yesterday's yeah, tomorrow, exactly. which is now. I sort of see Moondog in a similar way. I have. Perfect. Now is all well, I Well, we're going to take a little uh, musical interlude here. What are we listening to in the now. middle? Moondog monologue. All right, great. The better Thanks. I go when you would that I stay, that I stay on, than stay when you would that I would go. Better I go than stay. Ebb and flow of the ocean, love and hate of emotion, nothing lasts is my refrain. As the moon and my feelings wax and wane, I remain calm. I was just everything until I fell, and was just nothing. Then, worming up pathway, I found with pleasure, I was just something. Standing at the door of my departure, I observe that your eyes belie all that you have said, for you are still in love with me. Then, when recognition comes, he will take my muse, take her to his bed of ease, have his will, have his fill, and strangle her. My tiny butterfly butters my bread. My briny flutterby keeps me well fed. Why should I mutter? Stunned by this last rebuff, I rebound. On the way back, I hear me saying to myself, dwell in your shell. One thing about life, be it said, it feeds upon itself over and over, and of itself is fed. Should I love you as I love myself? Suppose I hate myself. I would be as free to hate you too. I am never quite educated, never quite so. But I am ever in the painful process of becoming so. You remember me and my song. Only such immortality strikes creative sparks from my soul because of you.
who could wear out their welcome there when there is no welcome there to wear out? There is where it is, here on earth. I would advise you not to generalize as a rule. A fool to be. I have just uttered a generalization. Ah, me. Down is up, and so up is down, because the earth is round. Welcome back to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM, or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about the show. Our guests today on The People are Christina Andres and John Hogan. And Christina Andres, let's talk about megaliths. <laughs> what are they? Megaliths. <laughs> Yes. Megaliths are huge, massive stone structures um, that were erected around the world, actually. Um, my specific interest in them is focuses on the Neolithic period, which is actually the new Stone Age, which is the latter half of the, the Stone Age. So we're talking about at least 6,000 years ago. Um, and I had occasion to, vis to visit um, a number of these when I was in France uh, about three years ago. Um, Karnak, France, actually has one of the largest concentrations of megaliths um, in the world, um, and specifically in all of Europe. And um, that area has a, a, an arrangement called the alignments, which are unique because they, um, they're rows of megaliths, which are huge standing stones in like vertical aspect to the earth. And in Karnak, they, they utilize a form of perspective that actually sort of, there's a vanishing point, and then it spans out towards the horizon. And then there's a, what they call a, um, a quadrangle, which is a, a large square enclosure. And we don't really fully know what their purpose was for, but obviously they had a relationship to sun worship and the rotation of the planets. And um, they align with the setting sun on the winter solstice. So they were probably used for processional ritual use. <laughs> But there are all other kinds of megaliths too, like dolmens and cairns, and um, different arrangements of the stones have different names. Now, this is perfectly feeding into my ultimate plan of turning this into an archaeology podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Avant-garde archaeology. I have some reading I can recommend. That's, that's why it's called <laughs> the people. Exactly. Um, so, so talk about the the standing stones and the megaliths and how it relates to your work, the paintings specifically, which you can see on the blog, which are awesome. Uh, what, what's going on there? Like, what, how are they related? Um, well, I guess broadly, as an artist, I could say I, I definitely have an interest in what I call, you know, would term the ineffable, which is that which is difficult to describe in um, written written language or um, ex, you know translation of experience. Um, and I think the megaliths fit into a similar realm because although we can sort of um, they, they come from a time that we can't ourselves know. 
because there's such a distance, you know, of 6,000 years ago, you know, that we can really only glimpse it through this kind of window of experience. We, it's, it comes from an entirely different culture and one that is largely lost. And, and in some ways, I think that those experiences are, are what really engage me as an artist. Um, so I think like my, my text-based paintings source more recent um, attempts to articulate that, but a lot of those come from sort of countercultural references for experiences of the sublime or transcendental descriptions of altered states of consciousness. And just to clarify, your paintings are often like graphite on black or that, that are basically like appropriated text from different books or correct or you know different like kind of like new mm -hmm. age texts or like yogic kind of stuff and um but the way that it's the way that you handle the graphite and the way that it's kind of applied to the canvas um there's also this it's kind of a black on black effect or the graphite on black at certain angles you can see everything mm -hmm. and it's crystal clear and other times it just kind of looks like a bunch of vertical bars um, and it becomes totally indistinct, you know, you can't tell one word from another or that anything's happening. Um, so I think that's an interesting way that you uh, kind of um, uh, are able to play with uh, something that's new that you're creating now that also plays with the idea of the ineffable or that which can't be really said is inside something that is being put out there outright or is mm. being attempted to be articulated by different people at any given time. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely, there, there's like formal, there are formal aspects at play, you know, sort of this idea of the visible and the invisible and using like similar um, value qualities, like the black actually becomes a similar value to like flat graphite when the light is not directly hitting it. So it sort of becomes invisible, but when the light shifts or the position of the viewer shifts, it's sort of like an experience of revelation that suddenly you can see marks that weren't visible. And then when you I sort of created this font that looks like just vertical marks, but when you, become, when you come closer to it, you can actually decipher it as legible English <laughs> writing. Right. And so there are, but there are always phrases that in a way, like that's important to me too, that they're incomplete, like they're not sentences that stand on their own. They just sort of are moments that grasp part of an experience. And that, that uh, the, the uh, real life kind of, uh, kind of re reference I have for that uh, would be the burial mound, inside one of the burial mounds we visited, which is in your in your book, The Invisible Way, An Invisible Way, which is the, uh, in France, uh, what was that burial mound? The, the one in the Cabernice. islands? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was there, but I don't remember. But uh, that you could go in and it's a bunch of stones and it's hard to kind of distinguish what's going on. And then you get closer and you realize there are these really intricate mm. spirals that are really tightly wound spirals carved into the rocks and they're thousands of years old. And, and the know. reason that some of these, ne most of these Neolithic cultures are uh, a mystery to us or a large part of the mystery that they represent to us is because they did not have or a written language or that written language didn't survive, right? That's, that's true. And actually that's why Gavranice is unique. Like this is, um, this is a, basically in present day, in the present day, this is only accessible by boat. 
Um, you take a small boat um, in this this region near Karnak in France, the Lac Maria Quare, um, and you you travel out there. It's about 45 minutes by boat. And um, the interesting thing to me is that this was not always an island. You know, 6,000 years ago, it was at least like sea level was at least 30 meters lower than where it is now. So I mean, that alone like explains how like the geography has changed. Um, and one thing I remember being really fascinating about experiencing that site was that it did have these intricate stone carvings. Um, in a way, the patterns almost resemble the, the swirls on our fingertips, you know, that it feels like this sort of primal articulation of some sort of like energy flow. Um, but that the, the, the top of that tomb, actually, they archaeologists discovered that it actually is part, was part of a larger tomb that predates that. You know, so you get this like sort of unfathomable sense of time when you visit a site like that, because that already seems like, whoa, 6,000 years, what is that? You know, what are people like then? What is going on? What is culture like at that point? You know, obviously people are building things with stones because this is what they call a cairn, which is basically, it's a, it's a dolmen, which is a series of upright stones topped by another another um, perpendicular lintel. stone. <laughs> so it's sort of like a table. That's like the translation as a dolmen is like a table-like structure of stones. But then it's like covered with earth, and then it's also entirely covered by small stones. So basically, a lot of these formations look like you're looking at a natural formation. Like from a distance, you might think it's a hillside or something. Mm -hmm. And then to realize that it's actually man-made, I found it very destabilizing with my like perception of mm -hmm. the entire environment. Because it's like you start to wonder like, what is what is man-made? What's real? Like how do we know what anything is? You know? And then to find through archaeological study that this structure actually is like sort of a reconfiguration of previously existing monuments, like kind of just blows your mind in another yeah, level, right, you know. Yeah. And the scale of that is enormous because the the stone that allowed that revelation, I mean, was just part of a much ma more massive men here, which is a standing stone structure. Um, it's my favorite. And it was located some something like approximate to at least two miles away or more. So that also intimates that there was a large like traveling of these massive stones. And so you brought along a piece called Dolman Music by Meredith Monk. Can you tell us about that and uh, how it relates to what we've been talking about? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I think, I just think this, this is a really beautiful piece. Meredith Monk has made a lot of different compositions and they utilize the human voice in different, um, in different forms. And um, this is a tw 20 plus minute long piece. So obviously we're just, we'll play an insert, uh, an excerpt here. But um, I don't know, there's just some really beautiful moments in this where they resonated with me because I, I think there's this like sense of the the primacy of the human voice and how it's communicated throughout history, like to to mimic its environment. And I think there are some passages here where where I've felt in listening to it, you know, that the voice you can hear like what is initially recognizable as a human voice sort of morph into animal calls or bird calls and like and then sort of a circling, swarming intimation of environment as an experience. Um, and that was just something that um, seemed to resonate with me um, as, as having firsthand experienced visiting some of these sites that seemed to capture the physicality of, of those locations. 
Well, let's have a listen. Let's, let's talk about the birth of utterance and its relationship to the, the sound piece that we just heard. Well, it, I think if you, you know, hopefully if, if anyone's interested and listens to the entire piece, I think that it's a, it's a phrase that, that came up in, in relation to her work. And I think that um, it sort of explores that idea of, like, how do we communicate experience? As humans, it seems to be this innate drive we have. It's not like enough just to experience something ourselves. We want to share it and we want to articulate it, you know? And I think that's what resonates with me as an artist, as part of my experience, is wanting to, to share that. Um, and I think I really love how in that piece, Meredith Monk does it in different ways throughout her work, but I think that one resonated with me because it seems to go into... Um, an interpretation of the environment where the human voice sort of becomes the sound. They're like toward the end of the piece, the voices sort of coalesce in the sound of like, that sounds like when you, a flock of birds lifts off, you know, from a, a, a field or something. They, all these sounds coming together in, in forming another movement that causes another sound. So I think that that's really 
um, that transmutation of form, I think, is really important. Birth of language. <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing. <laughs> um, so what are we doing now? We, well, we have a piece that, we have another piece that you brought that's actually your work. Um, and it's called Incantation, but I think it has, like, other titles associated with it because it was part of a larger piece, right? So tell us about this piece, how it was situated. and Okay, I guess we'll just listen to a, a little excerpt of this. This is, um, this is, this is an incantation. Um, it's an audio element that accompanies a sculpture that I made, and the sculpture is actually a dodecahedron, which is... Um, it's one of the. It's a form that's one of the Platonic solids, which are forms that that Plato just used to describe different elements of the universe. And the the dodecahedron was affiliated with the shape of the universe itself. Um, so I welded this steel sculpture um, a few years back, and it actually I've, I've shown it a couple different ways, but usually it's suspended from the ceiling with a slowly rotating motor, so it spins around, and there's a, a, a three-inch or more sized um, quartz crystal that hangs in the center, and it's called a, um, a receptive visualization. Um, and the, the incantation is is a an audio accompaniment with accompaniment for it um, that that actually is a series of um, it's actually the table of contents for a book that I'm using to to invoke different states of visualizing both inner and outer reality. Seeing with the mind's eye the nature of the image. Inner and outer, fantasy and reality, perceptions and images, the duality and experimental psychology, the duality in physics, Carl Jung's psychic reality, the unity Visual images and the word Union and separation The cave paintings Participation mystique American Indian stories and rituals Verbal versus visual thought A brief history of imagery and religion Healing and psychology, Egyptian and Hermetic philosophy, Sumerian fertility gods. So that was great. Um, this piece was part of, uh, with the dodecahedron, um, was was part of a show, right? Uh, tell us, what was the title of that piece? One more time. Um, it was a receptive visualization for seeing with the mind's eye. Um, and it was most recently installed as part of the Knowledges at Mount Wilson Observatory show, which took place last summer. 
Um, and that's an artist initiative that I founded. And um, if you haven't visited Mount Wilson Observatory, I do recommend it. It's a beautiful observatory, astronomical observatory, um, just outside Pasadena, about a mile above Los Angeles. And it has some of the most stable night viewing skies in the, in the United States. Um, and we had a series of artists do installations there. And uh, it was a weekend long show. And um, we looked through the 60-inch telescope, which is a pretty amazing and <laughs> experience. And Edwin Hubble's locker is there. Yes, Edwin locker. Hubble was there. He had his major revelation there that the universe is expanding and that um, the Milky Way is not the center of the universe. We're just sort of on the suburbs of it, if you will. Right, so the, and uh, yeah. it's, there, there are some major revelations that have taken place there. And well, that, that piece was in the ground floor of the telescope, the yeah. big telescope. And then, which was also, um, what are some of the other pieces that were in the uh, Katie Grinnan yeah. had her astrology orchestra in the actual telescope part of the telescope, the viewing area of the telescope. Right. And uh, there were a number of art other artists in the, in the base of it. Uh, Kara Tanaka, uh, Jennifer Boyson, um, ViralNet, Tom Leeser, had some, they had some audio, Russell Crotty. Um, yeah. yeah. It was a big show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Um, thank you guys so much. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. We'd like to thank our guests, Christina Andres and John Hogan, for joining us today. And you can listen to The People every third Sunday at 3 PM on K-Chung, 1630 AM, or at the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about the show. Um, and uh, thanks for listening to The People, and thanks again to John and Christina. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So will you tell us really quickly a little bit about the, the song we're going to play? Um, this is called The Half Remarkable Question, and um, I think it, it really resonates with me as an artist, and I think uh, many people will find it resonant as well. Um, just the idea of uh, trying to share our personal experiences with one another and how sometimes it's summed up best in a, uh, a somewhat, somewhat popular song format. Perfect. the black castle who moved the white queen when Gimmel and Arleth were standing between out of the evening growing a veil pining for the pine woods that ached for the sail there's something forgotten I want you to know the freckles of rain they're telling me so It's the old forgotten question What is it that we are part of? And what is it that we are? 
and an elephant madness has covered the sun. The judge and the juries, they play for the fun. They've torn up the roses and washed all the soap. And the martyr who marries them dares not It's the never-realized question What is it that we are part of? And what is it that we And what is it that we are? 